But just for that reason, college golf is simply high school golf, just better. Pro golf is simply college golf, just better. And that's just kind of how it goes. This is The Tournament Code. Jamie, Cooper's going to get us started in a second here. But before we get going, I got to quickly tell our audience about the golfer's agreement. It's this simple agreement we have with you guys. If the listener, please, really quickly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. We do this for free. We love doing it for free. It helps us, though, if more people learn about us. So if you can do that for us, that's all we ask. So, Jimmy, thanks for joining us today. And where we like to start with every guest is how did you get into the game of golf? Yeah, my... um my dad and my grandpa actually got me into it just from a young age. I, I don't remember when I was not playing golf. I have pictures of myself being out on the, the driving range of my home club in Tampa, Avila Golf and Country Club, when I was like three or four years old. So I've been into it since I was young. In fact, the joke in my family is this, like my dad used to travel a lot for work. So when he would come home before I was born, he would try to go play golf on the weekends. You know, he loved golf. My mom would be like, what are you doing going to play golf? We got to spend some time together. After I was born and like two, three years old, he'd come home from working, from traveling during the week, and it'd be Jimmy's waiting out in the golf cart for you. Go take him to the golf course. So I don't remember a time when I wasn't playing golf, but it's all thanks to my dad and my grandpa. Awesome, awesome. So was there a time when you started playing tournaments, and did you play tournaments at a really young age, or did you kind of get into that at an older age? Yeah, I've always been competitive at pretty much anything I did. In fact, I'm pretty sure my first grade teacher went to my mom during a parent-teacher conference or something and said, uh, Jimmy's really maturing. He's not crying when he loses at recess. So I've always been competitive. For that reason, I was I was entered into some you know golf tournaments at six, seven years old. Started playing Greater Tampa Junior Golf Association stuff then. It wasn't really until I was about 10 or 11 that I started getting more serious. Anything before then was kind of fun whenever we had the chance, but it wasn't like we're going to go out of our way to go to a golf tournament. So it was it was more for fun early on, more playing with friends. And then when I started getting 10, 11 years old, uh, we started traveling a little bit more within the state of Florida. And then, you know, by the time I was a teenager, kind of traveling nationally to play some golf all over the country. Not a not a bad way to grow up. For sure. For sure. Did you play any other sports or was it just always golf? I played anything and everything that I could until until high school. I was actually um, on the soccer team my freshman year of high school. And after spraining my ankle for about the third time, I realized I was a little better at golf than I was at soccer. And if I wanted to play professionally, which has always been the dream, that I, I probably need to not play other organized sports. But I'll still throw the football around, throw the baseball around. And I'll do that on the road a bunch. I, I love sports in general, but golf's my favorite, obviously. So you were thinking even before high school, you know, you wanted to play professional golf? Yeah, yeah. I've got a note. It's over in the living room, so a little far away from where I'm at right now. But it basically talked about when I was uh, or when I was eight years old, I wrote on a piece of paper that my, my goal in life is to play with Tiger Woods and the Masters when I'm 20 years old. So I wrote that back in 2003. I'm a little late. I'm 28 now. But nonetheless, it's still has always been my dream clearly to play professional golf, play in the masters to, to be kind of where I'm headed this next year to the PGA tour. And so when you were going into high school, what steps did you take to start playing college golf? Yeah, it was, 
it was a bit of a smooth transition in a sense because I was able to live in in the great state of Florida, play the Florida Junior Golf Tour, just a really good local tour. When I was young in high school, I started getting recruited relatively early. Um, between that and then I started playing AJGA events more as a junior and senior in high school. With college coaches kind of following along, getting to talk to my parents, kind of getting immersed in that thing, that whole like subculture of golf. It was more so just playing those tournaments, learning stuff from those coaches, getting recruited by them that helped me um, ease my way into college golf. I, I don't think it would have been as easy to try to walk on a team had I not been recruited. But just for that reason, college golf is simply high school golf, just better. Pro golf is simply college golf, just better. And that's just kind of how it goes. When it came to colleges and figuring out what was the best fit for you, how did you make that determination? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think at the time of choosing colleges, I was truly in love with any college. It was more a process of elimination than anything. My, we visited a bunch of schools all over the country from University of Virginia, where I ended up going down in South Florida, visited a couple D2 colleges down there, and I even visited Harvard to look to see if I wanted to go that route. And it was just a question of what I really wanted to do with my life, which if you ask any 17-year-old what he wants to do with his life, I don't think he really knows. I don't think I knew at the time. But by God's grace, I was able to choose a school that allowed me to go perform both in the classroom, great business school um, at the University of Virginia, which was a goal, and a top 10 golf team basically every year that I was there and in the years before I was there. And by the way, they're really, really freaking good at golf this year too. So I'm really glad that I chose the University of Virginia and um, just a great coach and Bowen Sargent, great school, and, and really fell in love with it more so after I chose it than before I was even going there. In your time at Virginia, how did you manage such a demanding academic schedule and such a demanding golf schedule? Good question. I think looking back on it now, I was a bit naive and innocent going into college on how much work that would be. And I think that's probably what helped me is it was just, I'm going to put my head down. I'm, I'm, I have these goals of trying to go do the comm school at UVA. That's what we called it, the business school, which you had to get accepted into after two years, as well as, as being a golfer. So it was really just being about being present, being where I was at. A lot of the people told me I couldn't do it. When someone tells me I can't do it, that gives me a much more of a fire to prove them wrong. So I think it was a combination of those things and just God's grace to be able to be successful at it. I easily could have been mediocre or, or worse at, at doing both of them. But thankfully, I can't believe I, I look back in my college and, and see the success that I was able to have. Yeah. And you mentioned College golf is like high school golf, but better. And the better part is really the crux of does a lot of lot of the work in that sentence because you go from being maybe the best on your high school team, a lot of guys do, or the best in your county, maybe even the best in your state. And now you're playing against guys for a spot to be able to go on. And not only are you just playing against guys who are your age, because when you're in high school, you know, you are the 18 year old and there are 14 year olds. Now you're the 18 year old and there are 22 year olds. Tell us about grad, essentially graduating up to that level and then competing for a spot and competing at Virginia. Yeah. I mean, like you said, what I meant by better there is it's just better competition. You're playing against better players who have better coaching and better resources. And it just continues like that. So when I got to college, it hit me like you go from being a very big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond, right? So you, you get to college, you're 18 years old, 
all of a sudden guys can hit the ball so much further than they could in high school. You're playing tougher golf courses. Everybody you're competing against, not just nationally, but on your own team, like the nine, 10 guys on your college golf team, they were all the best in their high school. Uh, most likely they were all the best on their state because those eight, nine guys are you know spread out over a period of four or five years, depending on how long you're in school. So you're playing against the best, really of the best in your your area. And that was a challenge for me. It was a bit conceptually hard to wrap my brain around it the first couple of years. Um, I expected to go to college and play extremely well and got blown away by how hard it was my first two years. Um, I, I don't think I had consecutive back-to-back top 20s until my junior year of college. So it was, it was a tough process both to qualify consistently on the team and to play consistent college golf when I got on the travel team to, to play in the country. But again, it's, I think it's a proverb where it's just hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So you've got to just continue to work hard, try to just work a little harder than the guy next to you. And over a period of a couple of years, that, that really starts to show off. You might have had some struggles at the beginning of your college career, but you definitely had some success later on and you ended up winning the Southern AM and I believe it was either your junior year or senior year. So can you just talk about some some of the successes in your amateur career, not only your college career? Yeah, Cooper, that's that's a great point you bring up. And it's actually fun, pretty funny, too. So I'm going to kind of little story here for you guys. First college win. Well, it was it was a tie for first. I count it as a win because in college they don't do playoffs. Tied with Matt Neesmith and Myrtle Beach at the Dunes Club. So that was my junior year. That was the the spring semester of my junior year. So basically I had three semesters left of college. I'd already been in school for for five at the time. Is that right? I think that's the right math. But so it was pretty late on in my career that I had that win and hit a shot on the last hole, probably the best shot of my career so far. It was like a five iron draw underneath trees out of pine straw over water to a back pin with out of bounds behind the green. Uh, I did not want to pull it off. My coach was like, you got to hit this shot and pulled it off and ended up, ended up tying for first or getting my first college win. What that did at the Dunes club is it got me into the Southern amateur that summer between my junior and senior year of school or my third and fourth years. We like to say at UVA is at the very same golf course, the Dunes club in Myrtle beach, South Carolina. I think South Carolina, maybe North Carolina. It's right on the border there. Went to the Southern AM that summer and long story short, won that event as well. So I'm I'm 2-0 and on that golf course. And at the time, I swore that I was never going to come back or play that golf course again because, you know, you're 2-0 and at a, at a great golf course, quality, quality track. Uh, I don't want to ruin that record. Well, it's funny now that I'm going to the PGA Tour this next year. And just this last year, I don't know if you guys saw it, they announced a new event in Myrtle Beach in the Carolinas at the Dunes Club. So it's it's pretty crazy thinking back at those two two events that happened in both in 2016, where I won two college events, and now I get to go back in 2024 on the PGA Tour and play the very course that I won my first college event and my first really major amateur event at. So uh, that'll be special and really neat. That is awesome. Matt Neesmith is also, but before we started recording, obviously I had talked with you and told you about how we had met back at the 2016 you Sam at Oakland Hills, Matt Neesmith, I uh, had bumped into in 2015 USAM was super impressed by him when I was catting for Ashton Van Horn, who I think, you know, too, catting for Matt Neesmith was with us both days and super impressive, not just from how well he can play, but how he, he kept it together. One day he couldn't, he couldn't miss a shot the next day. He couldn't hit a good shot, but still managed. It was a little Olympia that year on the North course. I think he shot, 
70 while not hitting not hitting too many good shots which goes to show how good that play that you had there was when it comes to a situation where I thought that was interesting you said you know I didn't really want to pull it off my coach said I had to do it how do you commit to a shot and how do you like pull off a shot where you're like I don't know if I can do this I don't know if I want to do this yeah it Again, maybe that came across wrong. I thought the wise move there was to punch out. And my coach is normally the conservative one. You know, I'm normally wanting to fire at at the pin, and he's like middle of the green. Let's lay this up, get a wedge in hands. That's what I was thinking. And it was more so like he said, like, let's go for it. Let's do this. And what that did is it gave me a sense of urgency that, hey, I need to pull this off if I want to win. Like, if coach is saying I can do this, then I can actually do this. And I was I was pretty nervous over the shot. I, I distinctly remember hitting the shot and just not knowing where the golf ball went because trees blocked the view. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing claps up by the green. So it was it was more of like an encouraging. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I can do this. I'm pretty nervous right now. And then him saying, "No, this is the right shot." It gave me the confidence and the fortitude to to actually pull it off. And then for it to actually be pulled off was was a whole nother thing altogether. But in those moments, you do have to commit. You got to find your line. Almost in a sense, you got to turn your brain off and just let your athletic ability take over there. Just trust that you've put in the reps, put in the time, practice hard enough that your body will know what it needs to do. So yeah, that that's kind of how it's done. I don't know if I could repeat it, but that's that's pretty much how it's done. You only had to pull it off one time, and that's what counted. So we talk we talk about college and how towards the end of it, things got better for you and better for you, but when you when you're playing against such good talent and there's always talent coming around, it can be hard sometimes to gauge where you stand as far as golf and life. How did you figure out, Hey, I'm going to go do, I'm going to go try to play professionally when, I mean, you not, not that you shouldn't have, because obviously look, we're standing here and it's a good spot to be in, but you did a great job going to school that gave you a really solid backup option in life. If you go to UVA, that's a, as you said, it's a pretty darn good school and you got a lot of options coming out of there, a lot of connections. And for some guys, like I'm trying to think who's there's a teammate of yours or probably a former teammate of yours that I can think of that went to Virginia Cooper. Derek Bard uh, played in the Masters. Yeah. Nope. I was thinking think. Corey what's Corey's Corey last Siegfried. Name? Corey and yeah, Siegfried. Um, Max. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. I think Corey, as I remember correctly, ended up. He just does. Maybe he went professional for a little bit, but now plays mid am golf. I know. And when you go to school like that, you have plenty of backup options. And there are guys that we've talked to that have gone to school, like a, a solid school like that. Another one, Stephen Bear Jr., went to Clemson, pretty solid player, was borderline, was like, you know, Instead, I'm going to do the mid-am thing, make some make some money at Accenture, I think is where he started. How did you, how did that decision pan out for you? As far as like, how did you, how did you get, how what was the methodology for like, okay, I'll go, I'll go play professional golf. I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. Great question, Daniel. And that's something just as a type A personality, I, I remember thinking a lot about and talking a lot um, at the time to my family about it. Through my first two years of college, I did not think I was going to be a professional golfer. So between my second and third year of playing college golf, I interned at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. So I I thought that I would potentially be going down that route. You know, just get the internships, the ideas, 
those connections when golf ends that I can move into the business field. So that was 2015, 2016, even during the summer that I, I must have met you at the U.S. Amateur. And when I won the the Southern Amateur, I was interning that summer at the Federal, uh, at not at the Federal Reserve, at Raymond James Financial in Tampa, Florida. So I was fully prepared to go into to business after that. Um, it's actually funny. My last, for about a year there, all of 2016, if I played bad or I hit a bad shot, all I could think to myself was, at least I don't have to do this for a living. So I loved golf, but I kind of fell back on that that mindset. And it gave me a lot of freedom. Obviously, I've kind of had to learn some better ways of dealing with failure than at least I don't have to do this for a living when now I do this for a living. But I remember sitting in 2015 after just struggling through my first two years of school. I was ranked like 600 and something on the world amateur golf rankings and just sitting and talking with my mom and dad. My mom, especially being just a prayer warrior, my faith is a huge part of my walk. Pretty much anywhere you go and read about me, you're going to see that. But uh, she was just like, you know, continue to pray about it, continue to think about it and just put 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 a sign out there. Let's 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 say like you, you finish top 50 in the world amateur golf ranking when you graduate, then you turn professional. And I'm 600th at that point. I haven't even sniffed the top 500. And I just remember thinking to to my mom, I was like, mom, you're absolutely crazy. If I'm top 200, I'll maybe give it a shot. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. You know, I'm barely making the, the travel team. And when I make the travel team, I'm finishing 40th to 50th out of 60 players. So it was wild to see that happen. And then 2016, I went out there with just such a carefree mentality. In the beginning of 2016, I was outside of the top 600 in the World Amateur Golf Rankings. By December of 2016, I was on the Walker Cup practice squad and ranked 12th in the World Amateur Golf Rankings. It was absolutely nuts kind of what happened during 2016. So that, that was a year I'll never forget. But it was funny because of her comment of saying, okay, top 50 in the World Amateur Golf Rankings, then we consider playing professional golf. And I remember whenever I first cracked the top 50, I was like, wow, I, I can't believe this actually happened. And then by the end of the year, when I just continue to play good, I remember thinking, like, when is this ever going to stop? Continue to play well towards the end of the season and, you know, got all the way up to 12th in the World Amateur Golf Rankings and got invited to the Walker Cup practice squad. I was like, wow, this is this is going to be my life. It's clearly something God wants me to be doing and clearly something that I'm I'm good enough to play professional golf. So it was really that mindset in addition to or that success in addition to some sponsors coming alongside like Nike, like Titleist, some of those major companies saying, hey, we want to sponsor you to play professional golf. That encouraged me to take that that step into the professional golf field. That is an incredible summer. And was it hard to not think about playing pro golf as you're winning these tournaments, playing really well in these tournaments, rising up the rankings? Or did you really just not think about it until the end of the year when you were ranked that highly? Yeah, I really just ignored it and procrastinated on that thought as long as I possibly could. As my friends in the fall of that year were getting their business jobs lined up after they graduated, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll put that off a little bit too. I don't really want to write up a resume. I don't really want to go through interviews, do all these things. So there's a little bit of procrastination there. For that reason, my, my play in 2017 struggled a little bit because I finally came to the realization that I was going to play professional golf. And I think the weight of that hit me a little bit more. But it was still something where once it hit me and once I realized that professional golf is where I want to go, where where God's leading me and where my career is going to be, at least for the next couple of years, there was a lot more just kind of peace about playing golf and just understanding there's going to be ups and downs. Tell us about those ups and downs of 
professional golf in particular, you know, going through Q school, trying to get status places and trying to hang on to status on various tours. Tell us about how, what the past few years have been like for you. Yeah, it's not easy. My first year, my first year Q school is the perfect example of just a fantastic story that encapsulates professional golf. I'll try to sum it up so that the average listener can understand. You you have Q school that you have to go through to get to the what's what's basically triple A for professional golf. So now the Corn Ferry Tour, back then the web.com tour. And if you play well enough on that tour, then you get promoted to the PGA tour. Play well enough on the PGA tour, you get to the very top events like the majors. So every golfer wants to wants to get to the majors, but to, in order to do that, you have to go through Q school to get to, you know, the Corn Ferry Tour, Web.com tour at the time. Well, my web.com tour experience started out, or my Q school experience to get to the web.com tour at the time started out poor to say the least. So I signed up, signed up for Q school. I knew I was going to end up having to go to pre-qualifying actually back in 2017. So signed up for pre-qualifying, thought I was going to get a site that was like September 2nd or 3rd. Took two weeks off after the US Amateur because I was playing poor golf in, in 17 and got a text message on my phone as I'm sitting in Tampa, Florida saying, your tea time is 9.27 a.m. in two days. I was like, and it was in, um, your tea time is in 9.27 a.m. in two days in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I'm like, I called the tour immediately. I'm like, well, what's going on here? I didn't pick this site. I picked a different site. And they said, oh, but you didn't get that site. You didn't get your second choice. You didn't get your third choice. You got your sixth choice. I was like, are you kidding me? So having not touched the club for two and a half weeks, being mentally exhausted after missing the Walker Cup in, in 17 and going out to Q school, I almost missed at pre-Q. I, um, I was two shots out with nine holes to play at pre-Q in Lincoln, Nebraska in 17. Played the back nine in four under par to make it by two, which included an eagle on a hole that uh, ball easily could have gone in the water. So easily could have missed at pre-Q. We'll follow that up going to first and second stage of Q school. Won both first stage and second stage of Q school. So now I'm like, okay, I'm cruising. We're going to be fine. I go to final stage of Q school out in Arizona and fire an 80 in the first round. Was dead last. Not a great way to start. Followed up that 80 with a 62 in the second round, 10 under par. So 8 over par, 10 under par. Finished with rounds of 69, 63. In my 63 in the final round, I lipped out a birdie putt on the last hole to miss my card by one shot. So it was, the Q school was just the definition of a wild ride, just going up and down and, and all around. Got onto the Corn Ferry Tour that year, was able to play my way on through Monday qualifiers. By the end of the year in 2018, so exactly a year later, I had a putt on the last hole to keep my Corn Ferry Tour card, and that one lipped out as well. So I ended up both missing my full card in 2017 by one shot, missed keeping my card by one shot in 2018, and then I'll having to go all the way back to Q School back at the end of 2018. It was just a wild ride that I, I, I've not experienced since. There's a lot of ups and downs to pro golf, but I think that perfectly encapsulates it. Since then, I've been I haven't really risked losing my Corn Ferry Tour card. I've maintained status on that tour, but I've, I've come very close to getting my PGA Tour card. It just didn't quite happen until until this year. So it's been a little more stable in that sense, but it's still, there's so many ups and downs to the game of golf. Definitely. I want to go back to that first Q School experience for you at the final stage when you shot that first round 80 and followed it up with a 62. I think most of the golfers listening would understand this and saying, you know, if I'm going out and shooting 80, there must be something seriously off. Like I must be spraying the driver or terribly mentally off or something like that. How did you turn it around 
so quickly. Yeah, I mean, clearly there was something off. I remember going back home and thinking, well, there's always next year. I'm still young. Again, I wish I said I had this incredible moment or this incredible epiphany of this is what I was doing wrong. But really, the next day, I just went out and tried to get the drive in the fairway. I remember toe hooking my first drive the next day and being like, here we go again. I'm glad that stayed in bounds. But really, just finally hit a couple good shots. I, I remember it started out that that second round where I shot 60, 62, birdie, birdie, birdie in the first three holes. And it really just started out the first hole, toe hooked that drive, was able to find the, the wedge shot out of rough, hit that to like 10 feet, and then a putt went in for the first time. It's like, okay, this feels pretty good. Let's try to do that again. And hit the next fairway, hit the next iron shot to about 10 feet, that putt went in. I was like, wow, okay, this is a little easier than it was yesterday. And next thing you know, that train gets rolling, and I, I didn't really change anything in my swing. Things still felt a bit off, but it was just staying so much in the moment of realizing, okay, let's just appreciate where we are now. It's probably not going to end well. No way I shoot 80 and keep my card, but let's just try to enjoy every shot of golf that we can for the next three days. And next thing you know, something crazy happened, and we almost got our card, but still gave ourselves some pretty good status for 2018. Yeah, and you've done a great job, as you said, keeping card year in, year out, and that can create a lot of pressure for guys. When it comes to your golf swing, though, you know, you mentioned you'd had just a random bad day at that first round and final stage. When it comes to your golf swing, the week of a tournament or something like that, one, how much are you thinking about it, working on it, doing anything with it? And then also, in general, tell us about who you work with as far as your golf swing and how that's progressed. Yeah. I mean, there's times where you're you're making some, you're never making swing changes, but swing tweaks the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of a tournament. By Thursday, there's not much you can do. And the more I play pro golf, the more I realize it doesn't make a big difference if you're working on your swing or not. What you have is what you're going to have. Um, it's more so, can you learn how to play with it, learn how to curb the big errors and um, just keep it in front of you. Even when I won this year, I was spraying my driver everywhere and did not feel particularly great compared to some events earlier in the year. I just stayed extremely patient with it. At the time, I was working with my childhood swing coach, Gary Anderson, schematic golf in Orlando, Florida, or I guess kind of Mission Inn, if you know where that is in Florida. So great coach, awesome guys, giving me the fundamentals that I needed to get to the PGA Tour. The first couple years on the Corn Ferry Tour, I think, revealed some holes in my game that I needed to work through. Um, really just individual to me, the way my body moved, things along those lines. And that led to a journey that that led me to my, my swing coach now that I've had for about two years, John Scott, who works out of Congressional in Washington, D.C. So he's been awesome. We've made a pretty big swing change. It was more of a gradual like process over the last two years, but it's gotten significantly better in the sense that it's just more consistent trying to eliminate the big misses. Just easier to play day in, day out, and easier on my body injury-wise as well. But swing-wise, you kind of have what you 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 have when you show up to a tournament. If you want to make changes, you got to do that right now during the off-season when you have some some months to change muscle memory. Yeah, I'd like to talk some about just your corn fairy career as a whole and what you've what has your experience on that tour been like and what have you learned up until this point which has gotten you to the pga tour yeah i've learned a lot i've learned there's a lot of really good golfers out there i've learned that that golf can be a cruel game and it can be a, a game of great ecstasy like it's there's so many ups and downs and that's what makes it so great um 
I'll tell you what, though, like Alex Baldwin, what she's done with being president of the Cord Ferry Tour since 2019, it's just completely changed the way the tour was. In 2018, it was starting to improve, get a little bit better there, but it still kind of felt like a mini tour. And since then to today, 2023, the tour feels like the second best tour in the world, right below the PGA Tour. It's incredibly well run and continuing to get better and better. And I think it's prepared me well to go to the PGA Tour because I've had to play in front of crowds. I've played under intense pressure from fields that are really good, if not better than some opposite field PGA Tour events and maybe the lower PGA Tour events. You're playing on conditions and weather conditions, green conditions, firmness of courses, different grasses, just like you're going to be playing on the PGA Tour. And I think it, for that reason, it, it does bring out the best you know, 25, 30 golfers each year that are not on the PGA Tour and, and puts them on the PGA Tour. You look at Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns, Cameron Champ. I'm trying to think of some more recently, like Will Zalatoris even. Guys that went through the Corn Ferry Tour and are killing it on the PGA Tour. There's a reason they went Bryson. through the Corn Ferry Tour. Great tour identified them. Yeah, Bryson briefly. I think he was able to jump straight to the, the Tour Finals there, but I guess you can count his name as well. I was thinking of those who played full seasons. But yeah, and, and I know there's others that are having great years up there as well. Lee Hodges just won. What's his name? Eric Cole had a fantastic year on the PGA Tour this last year as well. So, so many good players that have come from the Corn Ferry Tour. Max Homo was back down there for a year in 2018 when I was on the Corn Ferry Tour. So I, I could just keep going down the list. There's all those great players that you're seeing up at the top. The vast majority of them went through the Corn Ferry Tour to get to the PGA Tour. It takes a lot of time and grinding to have status, maintain status. And sometimes you just go back and forth, like look at friend of the friend of the pod guy who's been on Josh Teeter yeah. the past 20 something years, been all over the place, mini tours, corn Ferry, PGA tour. That's just kind of what it takes to get it done. You never know exactly how things are going to go for you and how things are going to pan out when it comes to this upcoming year on the tour as you said you've both been there and not been there in the sense that the corn fairies helped prepare you you've been under bright lights you've been under pressure what are some of the things that and if you if you can if it's too conjectural then that's fine but if, what are some of the things that you expect to be a little different when you're there maybe that you're looking forward to yeah, I think the Corn Ferry Tour focuses on small town America. The PGA Tour focuses more on the bigger cities. I think some of the travel and non-golf aspects of that will be a bit different. Finding places to stay, hotels, Airbnbs, flights, all those things will be different. Traffic, even getting to the golf course. Uh, you don't have to worry about that on the Corn Ferry Tour. On the PGA Tour, you actually have to allow for that because you're driving through that as well. I think those things will be a bit different. The larger crowds, you're playing on courses that are generally a bit longer and tougher. So we had a few of those on the Corn Ferry Tour, but I'm going to have to be able to hit my 8-iron and 7-iron a little bit better this year than I did this last year because I'm going to have more of those on the PGA Tour. And I've played a few PGA Tour events and kind of gotten my butt kicked so far. You know, and that was 2017, 2018, 2019, the last time I played. But uh, I've learned that you got to go into a humble, you have to go into it just trying to play one shot at a time. And I don't know how this next year is going to go, but I'm certainly excited to see what happens and to just give it my best. I think the fact that I was able to graduate from the Corn Ferry Tour, maintain my card on the Corn Ferry Tour for so long, shows me that I'm good enough to be on the PGA Tour, but I'll, I'm going to do my best. The results are in God's hands. Yeah, I'm sure one of your 
biggest goals this year was to get your PGA Tour card and you ended up achieving that goal. Throughout the season, were you looking at the points list or saying, you know, I need to finish here to finish here? Or were you just trying to play the best golf that you can and see what happens? Yeah, I try not to look at the points list. I don't even look at leaderboards when I'm playing golf. Like I mentioned to you earlier, Cooper, I've been competitive since I was in first grade kindergarten. You know, I still, I don't want to say I still cry when I lose, but I definitely cry inside when I lose. So it doesn't help me to be seeing what other people are doing, especially before tournaments have ended. I consider the season the same way. Like I might be at ranked 10th on the points list through two events, but ultimately you're not going to be 10th at the end of the season. If you just try to, you know, I don't know, you try to micromanage where you're at on the points list. The key to, to finishing the best that you can every single week is to give every effort of energy that you can into playing the best golf that you can. And that doesn't mean looking at leaderboards for me. It doesn't mean looking at points list. It means focusing on my sleep patterns when I'm home, eating well, practicing well, maximizing the time that I'm able to practice well, things along those lines that will affect where I finish on the points list at the end of the year, which is the goal to finish as high up on the points list as you can. Virginia has a lot of great mental coaches associated with it. Two of them, obviously, Rotella out of there. And then our friend Mo Pickens also went to UVA. And the sentiments that you've echoed there are very close to things that they've said. And it at least seems to indicate that, you know, you're thinking about things very process wise. You, you're not necessarily getting wrapped up into the motion of golf. Tell us, do you work with mental coaches? Have you worked with mental coaches in the past? I know with teams that a lot of times you have access. Tell us about that and if that's influenced you at all. Yeah, I'm so thankful for my time at UVA to be able to have worked with Bob Rotella there. We've stayed in touch over the years, too, so I've been able to call and talk to him when I've kind of been in some ruts and even played some good golf, so we've, we've stayed in touch. He's been a big influence just on confirming what I need to be doing, what I need to be focusing on, realizing that I don't need to be swinging it good to play good, and just because I'm playing good doesn't necessarily mean that I'm swinging it good, so things along those lines make a huge difference, but more so, I'd say, yeah, Doc would be probably the biggest influence in that area where he's just really taught me to be be proud of playing um, playing poorly well, as we used to say at UVA. How how well can you play when you're playing bad? And um, just learning how to, to get out there and, you know, hit the putt. And maybe it didn't go in, but you, you controlled everything well. And in your mind, you made the putt. And there's no reason to get wrapped up in, did the putt hit a bump and lip out? Uh, you can't control that. Let's control the things you can control. So process oriented is well put, Daniel. That's that's really the mindset that I think champions have. And you'd mentioned also that one of the big things that you're going to notice a difference in with the PGA tours traveling a lot more, being in bigger places. Tell us what generally uh, travel looks like for you. Not just like all right, driving here to there, flying here to there, hoping my clubs make it if I'm flying any of those things. Tell us what it looks like as far as like who you're hanging out with during the week, because you know, there's 24 hours in a day you're sleeping, call it eight to 10 hours, depending on who you are. You're practicing some of that time. You're on the course. Some of that time. There's also like, sometimes there's just time where you don't have any, you're at the gym some of the time, but sometimes there's just time where there's nothing else to do. And it's not like you're at home where you can, where you need to clean up your room or, do something like that. And as you can see in my background, something maybe I should do in this room. 
what it what is that what is that time while on the road look like for you how do you try to fill it to make sure you don't get distracted with the wrong things yeah great question let's see if i can kind of break down that a little bit the way things work on the road typically i love staying with other guys in airbnbs i think it's the most fun way to do it because you feel like you're staying in different houses each and every week you're you're at home in a sense while on the road versus hotel rooms get really old really fast so Airbnbs, you can cook food. You typically have your own room, but also a common area to hang out with people. I, I would much prefer that. So on the Corn Ferry Tour the last few years, we typically will room with two or three guys every single week. Some of my closest friends out there being Blaine Barber, Stephen Franken, Tom Whitney, who got his card this year. I mean, even Teeter himself, um, just an awesome human being. So I'm excited to, to try to do a little bit of that on the PGA Tour next year. I don't know as many people on the tour, at least well enough to the room with him week in, week out, but I'm, I'm hoping that will develop. Time-wise, it is pretty full. There's there's not a lot of downtime. I'm learning for me that I get pretty stimulated on the golf course. My heart rate's up. So when I'm out of the golf course, even watching TV, something along those lines is not going to be that helpful for me. Reading is really what calms me down the most. So I do most of my reading on the road. I, I love reading. I, I enjoy that. So I'm, I'm always cruising through two or three books at one time, especially on the road, to just help settle me down going to bed. I think that makes that makes a huge difference on the road. But again, there's not a ton of time for that. Most of the time you're leaving to get to the golf course, sometimes at like four and five in the morning. If you have an afternoon tea time, it'll be like nine or ten in the morning. But either way, you're pretty much not home until somewhere between you know five and eight o'clock at night. And then that's not counting dinner. So there's a lot of there's not a lot of downtime on the road, at least for me, is what I've noticed. What kind of books are you reading out there on the road? I'll read um, I, I'm more into the philosophical books, but I'll read everything. I, I love love a good classic. So even just some Charles Dickens, some of that stuff, some good faith-based Christian books this year. We'll kind of work through some of those. And then like yeah, like The Making of Meaning was a book that I just finished as well. So kind of a famous book written by, I'm forgetting the name of the, the author right now, but he wrote it from basically a prison camp in Auschwitz or one of the concentration camps in, in a Nazi prison. Victor Frankl. So, Victor Frankl. Exactly. There you go. There you go. So just books along those lines that help put things in perspective really, really help me. A little bit of Wealth of Nations, a little bit of Brothers Karamazov. Just, yeah, the, just the usual light reading. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you've got to get, got to get your guys in there. Yeah, I try. I've tried to work. Gosh, what is it? I'm blanking on my books right now. I've got got a bunch here in the background, but yeah, my um, Dostoevsky novels. Yeah. and there's a lot of dialogue in those. I can't say I've fallen in love with those yet, but I, I want to get to appreciate them more and more. So I know, I know. That's how I felt about Brothers Karamazov. Was that way for me i got part way through it and stopped for a bit there's a few others and some of i gotta find there's some of his other shorter stories that i liked a little more i felt that way about bleak house you mentioned D dickens i don't know if you've read yeah. bleak house i've not uh, read that one no i read okay um, yeah i read as tale of two cities this year as well as the oh my goodness i am just struggling on my names of books right now but as well as one of his other famous ones this year as well, but I love his stuff. It shows how much I'm learning from reading him, but it's a good no, no, uh, distraction from golf. Oliver Twist? No, it was, was it? 
I literally have it right back here, but I can't quite see it from this angle. But yeah, it was. Gosh, I am completely blanking on it. You good? Yeah. Well, Dickens Dickens can be hard because he got paid side sidebar here. He got paid by the because they weren't writing books necessarily. If I remember that right, he was writing it in essentially like the newspaper story releases. So he essentially got paid by the word, which is why some of his stuff is so wordy because he had to spread it out across multiple issues yeah, and was making yeah. more money from the story. Yeah, that but that sense. is that is cool that you got that sort of reading list. That's what I'd expect a good. UVA man to be doing. So you got your reading list. That's usually what you're doing during any spare, during any sort of spare time when you're out there and you get back home for a week or two, et cetera. What does that look like as far as resting, as far as practicing, as far as in the gym, what do all that, what does all that look like for you? Because you mentioned earlier that you mentioned earlier with your first coach first two years out of college, you realized you had some, you're making some biomechanical changes. And it sounded also like those were some physical changes that you're making in part because of some stressors that were happening in your swing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a big thing as a pro golfer, you're an individual, but you need to have a team around you and forming that team is huge if you want to be successful. So that's where right now having John Scott as my coach, having Alex Bennett as my personal trainer um, here at TPC Sawgrass in Jacksonville. Like those guys are incredible at working in that area. Even just my girlfriend is extremely helpful with nutrition and kind of all those things working together will help you feel as good as you need to in order to play good golf. Ultimately to get better at golf, you have to be practicing. You have to be working at it. But if your body isn't allowing you to put the club in that position because your left wrist flexion is not there, then if you're trying to work on left wrist flexion, bowing that left wrist through the golf ball, it's not going to work. So that has to be worked on in the gym through different training exercises. If you want to rotate through the ball without early extending your hips, you have to have the core strength to be able to do that. And you have to be able to lengthen through your, your hips as well to be able to do that. So that makes a huge difference. During an off week when I come home, it's always at least two or three days off before we're getting back at it. But it's very intentional time. We're in the gym working out. Um, not necessarily lifting heavy or lifting some, but you're just trying to even the body out. You've made a lot of golf swings that are very one-sided over the last couple weeks that you've probably been on the road. And that is going to hopefully be offset by those few days in the gym. You're trying to get to bed early, get as much sleep as you possibly can, and really just calm down. You've been in fight or flight mode. At least I've been in fight or flight mode playing golf tournaments. So I'm trying to calm down and relax a little bit. So whether that's reading, playing piano, in the gym, working out, even just going for a walk on the beach, that's that's really the best way that you can be the best golfer that you can be. Towards the end of the week, we're back out working on stuff. Typically, mid-season, not trying to change much in my golf swing, but trying to get my iron numbers dialed in with my track man, trying to figure out exactly how far three-quarter wedge is going right now. And if that's varied over the last couple events and finding that go-to shot whenever I need it. So that's kind of the, the work that we're doing. And then typically the Saturday before we leave, I'll try to go play 18 holes with some friends and other pros and see how the game stacks up for the next week. Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier, you said your heart rate goes up on the golf course. And I think I see you wearing a whoop strap on your wrist there. Yeah. How, do oh, you, yeah. how do you use that to help you out there during the course of the season? Yeah, it's it's really helpful with, especially with sleep, but it's also helpful in seeing 
it's crazy how much higher your strain will be for an 18 hole round on a Sunday versus on a pro am Wednesday. It truly senses that and shows you that it shows you what happens when you eat late at night or if you consume a lot of sugar, like you can see how that is a detriment to your recovery. And if you think about it, if you're not recovering well, you won't be able to focus 100%. You won't be able to get that effective practice in. And that's just the biggest thing that Whoops helped me in is pinpointing, I need to sleep better and here's how you sleep better. And you need to learn how to be a little calmer on the golf course and then figuring out different ways to do that and actually make an objective standard difference, not just a subjective, oh, I feel better. But this thing gives you actual data, which objectively you can measure. Yeah, I think I know we're coming up close on time, but I wanted to kind of turn the conversation a little bit. I was thinking about this in part. I got a client who manages uh, some NFL and NBA players, not as an agent, but kind of, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it helps manage them. And one of them got traded recently in the past few days. And, you know, there's a lot of stress that comes with that. Now, the nice thing for you is that fortunately you can't be traded. At least right now you can't be traded anywhere. You don't have to go move to Denver. You don't have to go move to Seattle. You get to hang out in Florida. I'm assuming that's where you're, I'm assuming you're down in Tampa or Jacksonville. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in Jacksonville now. Okay. Yeah. Like fortunately you don't have to get traded, but there's still kind of a business of golf that goes on. You know, we're about tournament golf. We love decoding what it takes to play elite tournament golf, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of talk about at least the business of tournament golf, because that's part of what goes into you're managing your week. You're having to do things during your week. You're going and playing pro-ams, et cetera. And I see you got on Compliance Solutions Inc. on your shirt. You got Titleist as your hat. You got Johnny O as your provider. And I, for a lot of guys that aren't familiar with it, aren't they aren't familiar with deals with sponsors, et cetera. We're not asking dollars, things like that. Tell us about what it's been like cultivating the business side of your what I what I, your golf life. Yeah, yeah. And I can't can't ignore Wilson Cadillac on my sleeve right here as well. So got to give them a shout out as well. But yeah, the business side of golf is is super important just because it gives you the ability to play golf. It gives you a peace of mind when you're out there that, hey, if I don't make a cut this week, I can still pay my bills. My agent, Jeff Stacy, has been incredibly helpful with that as well. And in helping me kind of understand that side of it and reaching out to to different people, getting the deal with or finalizing the deal with Compliance Solutions, really helping me out with um, both Wilson Cadillac and Johnny O. Um, having a good agent there, if you're going to be playing professional golf, is is extremely helpful. But as is even just reaching out to these companies, sending a, a thank you note or a, hey, I'm trying to play professional golf. Um, is there anything that you would do for a young up and coming player or someone who who is is serious about it? And sometimes they won't necessarily pay you or even give you free stuff, but they'll give you a discount or they'll work with you. If you reach out, if you're not afraid to hear no, there's actually a lot of opportunities out there if you, you are able to reach out and do that. There's a lot of companies. I like thinking of it this way. When I drive the TPC Sawgrass every day to practice, there are at least 100 companies that I pass that are trying to make it work here in Jacksonville. And you reach out to some of them. They're going to almost all have a marketing budget where they're just trying to get their name out there. And sometimes the best marketing budget for them is to put their name or their logo somewhere on you so they can be seen both on a national scale and on a local scale whenever you're you're out practicing or you're you're going and eating you know lunch with with other people not that i'm wearing my compliance solutions and johnny o and all these logos all of the time 
But for official things like this or like when I'm practicing and, and doing those things, you, you will see those on me because it goes along with the business side of this game. And it, it helps those companies that have so kindly supported me as well. Absolutely. They'll be seeing, they'll be seeing their logo when we post clips from this and uh, hope, hopefully it does well for them. One question I have before we get to our final question is what does hiring a good agent look like? How do you know who the right people are? You're a UVA guy, so you got a lot of connections, a lot of smart, pe- a lot of smart people, all that kind of stuff. If I'm, if I'm me, you know, sim- simple man, went to states, went to normal state school, and I'm out there like trying to find the right people. You know, a lot of people come from a lot of different backgrounds is what I guess I'm saying. And we have guys who've been on who will go on and will need to find an agent. What's the what's the best way to tell who's real and who's not necessarily going to lead you in the right path? Yeah, great question. I wish I had a, had a perfect answer for you. From what I've heard, there are a lot of agents out there that are snakes and that are just trying to get their hand in the pot. I would, if you don't know any of the agencies in general, I would just just have a friend or have a family member that can part-time reach out to some of these companies or or might find that enjoyable to do. That's You want to hire someone you trust. Or if you know someone, you know, if people want to reach out to me or want to reach out to no other professional golfers, just reach out and ask like, hey, who do you work with? Why do you work with them? What are some guys that I can trust? Who are some guys that I don't go to? Because as players, we all know some agents out there who might not have the best interest in mind of their players, but are, have a lot of players. And we know the guys who are really working hard and, and getting going out there with the, the best interest of their players in mind. So a good agent is really helpful from the business side of things. Um, but a bad agent is pretty similarly tough from the other side of things. Just have someone you trust reach out and do that. And then slowly as you get into the golfing world, as you play some, some good golf, Daniel, and your, your pursuit of being a, uh, you know, PGA tour golfer, you'll, you'll run across other pros who have different agents who might be able to hook you up with someone along those lines. I wish I had a better answer for you. Maybe that's something I need to, to talk to my agent about or get my agent on your guys' podcast. So you can talk to him about that. That would, that would, that would be sweet. Yeah. I think for now, I'm going to stick to being a lawyer. I think it pays better than $0 I'd make over my next 30 years uh, there trying you go. to play golf for a living. Yeah. As far as as far as far things go, we've covered a lot of stuff. We've gone kind of from the beginning to the end. And so now our question to you, uh, it's the same question we ask every guest. And for you, it's going to be two parts. One, if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And then if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? I would say to myself, enjoy more and more the time that you get to spend with family and with your friends on the road. Don't rush through, you know, your dad taking you to events week in and week out just so that you can try to compete compete and win. Or don't don't place such a premium on competing and winning that you burn relationships that you're with. I think there were times growing up where I was so focused on winning and I was so focused on being the best that I could be even in junior golf, um, middle school, high school, where I might not have been as considerate as I should have been to the people next to me or as thankful as I, I could have been to my parents. So that's what I would say looking back on it. From a golf perspective, become a really good putter and a really good wedge player. And that really is just practice. That's what I would advise for any junior golfer from the second sets. And you can spend some time, just do the old Phil Mickelson drill. Just do take five balls, go around three feet, and just see how many you can make in 100 putts. It might take you an hour to go 100 putts around the hole from three feet, 
but knowing that, oh, I make 85% of these putts, or I make shoot, I only make 65% of these putts. I need to work on this. If you make a bunch of them, you get so much confidence on the golf course when you have a, that intimidating three footer that you can be like, I make 90% of these putts anyway. I'm going to be fine. If you don't, then you know, okay, I need to work on these a little bit more. Same thing for wedges. Just get out there, have a, just know what your stock numbers are from your, your lob wedge through your nine iron and maybe have a three quarter shot that you throw in with that. And just kind of, if you can get those numbers dialed in, you're not going to have a hole in your game and you're going to be leaps and bounds above other junior golfers that are there. So those are my two pieces of advice. Excellent. We appreciate it a ton. Appreciate you joining us. If people are trying to find you on social media, want to reach out to you, have business inquiries, the whole shebang, where can they find you? Yeah. Yeah. They can find me at, I'm pretty sure it's just Jimmy Stanger, both on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I also have a website, jimmystanger.com in the process of remodeling it right now. So it looks pretty decent on a computer, but it still need to work on the mobile format of it. But they can reach out to me there as well. My email is on that as well. So I also have to give and it do you a have a, yeah. And do you have a program for birdies? I think you were going to say something too, but you had a donation program and whatever else you were going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, had to get, get a quick show, shout out to Birdies for Hope, which is a charity that I started. You'll see that on my website on jimmystanger.com if you want to learn more about that. But long story short, I'm just trying to use golf to give back and bring hope to the world. So for every birdie that I make and I've made since 2020, I donate $10 to basically build buildings that are going to bring charities to small villages around the world. And I've been given $10 for birdie and getting other people to join with me for whatever amount that they can. Uh, we've raised over two hundred thousand dollars since twenty twenty. So, continuing to see that grow has been amazing, and I'm excited to see where that goes from here on out. Be sure to find Jimmy on social media, and be sure to check out the great causes that he's helping support. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube, like, subscribe, leave a rating. This helps us. It's the golfers' agreement. It's what we need from you because we do this for free. We love that help. If you're trying to find us on Instagram, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. We look forward to diving in deeper what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 